Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, the bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. My name is Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. How are you? Doing great. Good. And Sean Walker of Simple Co. fame. Good evening, Guy and Hui. Hey. Hey. This has been a very cordial opening. I, I like it. <laughs> This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our own perspectives on how we get things done in our shops. Uh, we also have a new Patreon account, and right now we have Unlevel, and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. I'd also like to say hello to a few new Patreon patrons we have this time, Matt Stout <clears throat> excuse me, and Glenn Flint. And uh, we sincerely hope that you'll give us uh, your support. So, and make sure to listen all the way to the end of the show. We're going to give a, a shout out to some folks who we think are notable woodworkers to follow on social media. So, I think we, you are at bat. All right. This question is from Joey. He's saying, uh, loving the podcast, guys. Thank you. Uh, my question is regarding third-party upgrades to bigger machines. Recently, I found a used Jet JJ6CSX. What is it with these companies and all these weird names? I actually had one of those. I know exactly what that is. Uh, on Marketplace, he found it on Facebook Marketplace for pretty cheap, $550. And the commercial contractor selling it must not have used it because it was in amazing condition. That being said, I'm tempted to upgrade the cutter head. Although the knives are functional and fine, I know that a helical head has a lot more long-term benefits. So my question is, have any of you upgraded a cutter head from a third-party vendor before? If so, how did it work out? I have also only been able to find a couple of options from Grizzly or Bird. Are there others out there that also make something that can fit this model? And what should I be wary of when I'm looking for a cutter head? As always, thank you guys for what you do. Uh, so I think actually all of us have in some way replaced the traditional cutter head with a helical cutter head. Am I right on that? Yep. Yes. Not on a joiner, but yes. Okay. So this is, this is a, is this a joiner or is this a planer? This is a, that, that is that's a, joiner. a joiner. Okay. Okay. Well, I've replaced uh, both on a joiner and a planer. And the joiner was easier than the planer because the planer has all the gear oil and all the gears that you have to take. You have to take off the gearbox if you got one of the bigger ones. But now, now, Guy, you've replaced on a planer as well. But your planer, I think, was a smaller DeWalt. DeWalt. Yeah. Yeah, the four post DeWalt. Yeah. How was it on that? Was that pretty difficult or no? No, it was actually a very simple process. There was actually a video of a guy. I can't remember the guy's name. It was funny as heck. He did a, a video on how to do it. And they actually, they sent the, it was a bird, a bird she looks head. Mm -hmm. They had very good instructions that came with it. It was just a matter of taking the, you know, like you said, you'd have to take the chain off to the gearbox. The gearbox had to pop out. Once that was done, you mm -hmm. just popped it out. And it came with the bearings already pressed on it. Which was nice. nice. Yeah. Nice. Did do you have to deal with any of the gear oil with that DeWalt planner? No. No, no. I didn't okay. have to deal with gear oil. Yeah, now I, I had to deal with the gear oil, so you know you have to drain that out and then you gotta take the uh gear assembly and just remember, you know, take a picture of it and just remember how everything goes back together. Uh but the joiner tent that I replaced the uh cutter head with was a grizzly cutter head. 
uh, or excuse me, a grizzly joiner that I used a bird cutter head. And I'm wondering if there's, uh, my guess is that this jo- jet jointer is a six inch. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think what that's what JJ means. Jet joiner and six meaning a six inch joiner, I think. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I actually thought it was easier to do on the joiner than it was the planer because it was literally just like four bolts. It came out, you swapped it out. Now I, I actually got a, um, bearing press is that right or a bearing puller yeah. a bearing yeah. puller that you can get from like o'reilly's or from uh advanced auto parts and just rent not rent it out but borrow it and then uh i i pulled off the the bearings and i actually replaced the bearings just because i didn't trust that the the race on the bearings i didn't trust that it didn't get damaged when i was i'm pretty sure i damaged them anyway so you know you pull the gears off and then or the bearings off and you put the new ones on but it it it's relatively easy. The cutter head that you bought didn't have bearings on it? No, no. I bought a bird, but it didn't come with bearings. Yeah. It, it mine, did not. Most of mine came with bearings on it. Well, surprised. your guy Dunlop, so they just- Well, like, I think you that's know. an it's an <laughs> option when you're buying the bird. Because when I was looking at it for replacing uh, the, the head on my uh, combo machine, mm. bird, I think, had the option of you could pay an extra X amount of dollars for them to install the bearings for you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, but ultimately, I, what I did was I replaced mine with a an OEM cutter head because it was you know going to save me four five hundred dollars, um, and it came with two bearings. And instead of pulling them and putting them on myself, I paid sixty bucks and had a machine shop take care of all that for me because I know I would have messed it up. The uh, jet because you you have the same jet joiner planer I do, and the the jet helical head cutter is a bird ripoff. I mean, it looks it looks exactly the same. Yeah, it's uh, it was a fairly straightforward replacement um, on the combo machine. Lift the beds, remove the DC shroud, pop the other one out, put the new one in after you get the, the bearings installed. And it was uh, really straightforward and definitely, definitely worth the upgrade. Now, I'm pretty sure that Bird makes a model for his jet jointer, but I'm not well, exactly sure if Grizzly does. Do you know the answer to that? Uh, I have to look at the website. Actually, Grizzly makes their own line of cutter heads. Okay. They fit quite a few other machines. Joey already said that he's able to find a couple of options from Grizzly. So I'm pretty sure he probably did a little bit of research and saw that the Grizzly would fit that because they obviously it's a six-inch cutter head that they – sell for their own line of joiners and i imagine it probably just lined up and would fit this jet as well yeah but i had a i had a, a an eight inch grizzly joiner with the grizzly helical head and it does not have the shearing action mm-hmm. that you get uh with the bird the canton uh blades yeah yeah and that's why i was saying that the the jet replacement is a bird knockoff because it has the the shearing action the only other third-party brand that I know of that I've heard of is Helix Head, and I don't know Helix if they- Helix Head? Helix That's Head. Original. That's pretty yes. original. <laughs> very, very. Actually, it's trademarked, believe it or not. It's actually a trademark uh, trademark brand, um, but uh, it, they have some interesting patterns. One of them has like a sort of like arrow head sort of pattern. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen those before. That's that's pretty. That's actually pretty common. It almost looks like a chevron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and a lot of those the the they first came out with those. They had those, and they were not even carbide inserts. They were steel inserts. Oh, okay. Well, make sure whatever you get is a carbide insert. Carbide inserts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that helps you, 
Joey, and and good luck. I think it's definitely a worthy investment, especially if you've got a you know you got that joiner for a great deal. You might as well go ahead and you know spend the cash that you would have spent on a new just straight knife joiner on on maybe this uh, helical upgrade. Let me ask real quick before we move on to the next question. Guy, you've probably have seen both the Grizzly and a bird head, or did you replace uh, on your joiner? Did that come with a Grizzly head? The Grizzly came with the Grizzly. Okay. So you've seen a bird and a Grizzly cutter head. Would you spend yes. the extra money on the bird or would you just stick with the Grizzly? That's a very good question. And I do not have a good answer for that. Okay. The surface I got from both were very good. Mm-hmm. I never had any issues whatsoever with the grizzly i couldn't and i to be honest with you the joiner works different than the planer so comparing the finish of the two i don't think is a fair comparison good point good point okay. that makes sense i was let me just let me just say this i was more than happy if i tell you what if i wasn't pushed for space that eight inch grizzly joiner i had was a fantastic joiner i loved it i would buy it again in a heartbeat if that's what i needed Mm -hmm. with that with the grizzly head in it Mm -hmm. without hesitation okay so i I guess yeah that's perfect I'm just, okay. I hope that helped Joey to, you know, try to figure out, should I spend the extra money on the bird, save a little bit on the grizzly. So it sounds like yeah. for a joiner, you can, yeah, I would probably be in a, a cheap woodworker that I am would save and probably go with the grizzly head if it's a little bit cheaper, but I've not used a bird head nor the grizzly. So I can't tell you. Well, good luck, Joey. And let us know how it turns out. Sean, I think you've got the next question. All right. This is also joiner related. Um, hi guys. Thanks for putting together such a great podcast. I know that guy has a 12 inch joiner planner combo machine, and I believe Hui and Sean may also. I've asked guy a few questions about his machine in the past, and he has been kind enough to answer and even do a review of his machine. Thanks guy. So guy, did you do a one-off review for him? Yes. Yes. I did a, a video review on my, on my YouTube channel of the, of the machine. Okay. You didn't do like a personal review for Craig, did you? Is that a service you offer? No, I did not. <laughs> All right. And I, I will do just about anything for enough cash. So if you want to do a, a, a personal review, please send a check. All right. Uh, so Craig goes, goes on to say, I'm looking to eventually purchase a similar machine to guys, but the Canadian importer I will purchase from offers both a 12-inch and 16-inch models. Has there been a time that you've wished for a machine larger than 12 inches? Obviously, a 16 inch is more money, an extra thousand dollars or so. Would you go for the 16 inch or 12 inches, or is 12 inches more than enough, Craig? This is a loaded question. Um, has there ever been a time that you've wished for a larger machine than the 12 inch? And that's absolutely here recently. I was jointing and milling and planing 22 inch wide Bobingo boards that I wish I had, not necessarily for a wider joiner, but the planer would have been pretty cool. But you know, that's always going to hold true no matter what size joiner you have, unless you have one of those aircraft carrier 24 inch uh, joiners. And even then, there may be a board or two that you'll have to rip, but it's going to be super rare. The majority of the boards that I buy, and this is, I'm spoiled because I get to pick through the lumber stacks, but I try to stay 10 to 12 inches if I can find it, try not to go any wider unless I get those spectacular Bobingo boards. So if I had the room, I would definitely throw down the extra thousand for the 16 inch joiner. 
But the 12 inch, I, I, I definitely can't complain about having a 12 inch joining capacity mm-hmm. because, you know, not everybody does. And it's, you know, something that is awesome to have. But anyways, um, now I do have to do a lot of glue ups that I would like to run through the planer. So having a wider uh, planing capacity would have been awesome, like maybe a 20 inch planer. Mm-hmm. But I'm fortunate to also have a drum sander that I can rely on for running the, the glue ups through. Back to your question. If you have the money, you have the room. Why not go for 16 inches? I can't think of any downsides. Can you guys? Other than the thousand dollars, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. If you've got the space and if you've got the room and if uh, the funds are there, go with a sixteen inch. I went with a twelve inch because uh, ultimately, again, the money, but also the fact that uh, that I don't really like having using boards that are wider than ten inches because they become a little bit uh, difficult to uh, to keep flat. Have you ever experienced that, Sean? Depends on the lumber. The Babinga, a lot of the water material that I've been getting recently has been quarter sawn and it's just, it's stayed dead flat after milling. And plus I let it sit in the uh, shop for over a year and then mm-hmm. uh joint, let it sit, plane it and it's been dead flat. Yeah. But it's not all lumber, just the what real wide stuff I've been dealing with. Guy, do you wish you had a 16 inch joiner? So... No, I've never wanted for anything bigger. I've never had anything larger than a 12-inch joiner anyways. Mm-hmm. So I mean, my DeWalt was, DeWalt I think is a 13. Yeah. Is yeah. that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I stand corrected. I've had a 13-inch joiner. Ooh, an extra inch. Um, Busted. Yeah, the, what I have now, it's more than enough for me. And, you know, if you're if you're doing like slabs and stuff like that, if I was doing slab work, yeah, I'd have a 16-inch joiner, but I'd also have a 20-inch planer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just depends on what your priorities are. Right. For me, most of the wood I get is well under 12 inches wide. The benefit for to have even a 16-inch model, for me, I don't see it. For that once in a blue moon, I get a wide board. But Sean's right. You know, Even if I had like a 16-inch board, I'd still rip it in half and glue it back together, you know, just to get a little stability out of it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's what I was thinking as well. So, but that's me. That's a question Craig has to ask himself. Absolutely. I'm just very, very fortunate that I can go pick through lumber stacks for hours at a time and find those super wide boards and, and get to pick them out. I don't do that. Yeah. If if you don't do that or you don't have the ability to do that, then just take a look and see what are the typical, what are the widths of the boards you've been purchasing and been getting? Is it less than 12, less than 16, save the thousand, go with the 12. I mean, either way. So, all right, guy, you have the next question. I do. Let me find it. Here it is. Hi guys. I've been pondering that this is a, this is a deep question, by the way, I've been pondering this for a while and just want some other perspectives. If you don't mind. So how would you go about veneering a cabriole leg, something in the Louis XIV era? I haven't found anything on how it was done, some kind of hammer veneering, I'm guessing. I want to do this for a personal project and would appreciate any insights. And this is from my buddy, Joey Chalk. Do you guys know Joey? He said, cheers. He's from New Zealand. Okay. So anyways, I did some research on this. And saying a cabriole leg from the Louis XIV era is specific, but the amount of information that I got back was vast. Mm. There's a lot of different 
leg styles coming out of that era. So with a cabriole leg, and then there's cabriole legs that are uh, flat on the sides, mm-hmm. and then there's some that are rounded, goes from rounded into a flat. There's a lot of different things going on there. So looking at the some of them that were you know flat cut, let's say, cabriole design, flat cut, I saw a lot of stuff that was veneered and then inlaid. Mm-hmm. If I was going to attempt to do something like that type of cabriole leg, I would definitely go hammer veneering, uh, mainly because it'd be difficult to put in a bag and I think it would be fidgety as heck. I've never done hammer veneering. It looks pretty straightforward though. You just uh, take hide glue, you put it on both sides of the veneer, you put it on your substrate, and then you press it and squeeze it the excess glue off with a veneer hammer, yep. which is just like a big metal squeegee. And again, it looks pretty straightforward. And I think that if I practiced on a few spare pieces first, I could get it down pretty easy because I'm, I'm fairly good with veneer. I don't want to say great with veneer, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay with veneer. Mm-hmm. And then for the inlay, you'd almost have to go with hand tools and make your own, you know, scratch all or a scratch stock and stuff like that, but it could be done. And it sounds like for Joey, if this is a personal project, you know, this is something that he's going to be looking at for, you know, as a family heirloom, it'd be well worth the, to putting the time into it. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? What would you think about uh, using like a shaped clamping call? So just using the offcuts from the cabriole leg to uh, to then use as a as a clamping call if you're not as proficient at hammer veneering. Uh, yeah, that's that's not a bad way to do it. I just myself, I just I, I would I would go the hammer veneering route mm-hmm. mainly because I haven't done it before. Right, right. And I'd want to try it. I've clamped veneer before. That's easy. Yeah, yeah. And that that was the only other method that I think that could have been could be used is is just using the offcut as a clamping call for the when you're cutting a cabriole leg on the bandsaw but uh, you know you might not get a perfect fit especially if you're you know feathering or fairing off the curves and whatnot so that might be a, a different issue I don't know what about you Sean what do you think yeah I think hammering would be the method that I would try first mm. have you ever done hammer veneering before no I haven't it looks messy <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the hide glue that you need to use for hammer veneering, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you can just use any tie bond hide glue for that. Can you? Don't you have to mix? I would. The, I would not use like the the Franklin hide glue no. or even the um, old brown glue or whatever. Old brown glue. Yeah. Yeah. You're gonna need to look at like specific. Um, and there's what is it called? Uh, granules. Uh, just by the granules, and you mix it with water, and you heat yep. it up. I've, I actually have that stuff, and I've used it before uh, for glue, mm-hmm. not for hammer veneer. But it's it's pretty easy to make up but it's really stinky and it's really messy yeah (laughs) but i i have used it quite a few times do you have a you have a little double boiler kind of thing one of those no i actually have a a a thing that you can buy and i bought it like probably about three four years ago it's like for people to to melt wax and to do to do like bikini waxes and stuff Mm -hmm. And and heats it up just fine yeah i know what you're talking about yep yeah it was like 20 bucks yeah, the the good thing about being able to do the um the hammering is uh is you can fix it if you mess it up. Can you just like reheat it and move it or yeah um, yeah 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 yeah. And there's also different 
it's what it's called. It's like gram strength, I guess you would, there's certain, you know, like yeah. a certain spec you want to use for the hammering veneer, uh, hammering the yep. veneer. Mm-hmm. So there's a few things to research. It's either 90 or 190. One of the two. I can't remember the number. I'm not. There's like 192, 251, 315. It's the one. It's the 190. It's the yeah. one. 192. Yep. Is what you want to use. Um, and people, you know, just so people understand what hammer veneering is, you're not taking a piece of veneer and hammering it down. What it is, like I said, is you put glue on the. Actually, you put glue on the substrate. You put the veneer on top of it, and then you put more high glue over the top of the veneer. And the uh, veneer hammer, it's basically like a metal squeegee almost, but Mm -hmm. it's called a hammer because it's got a big head on it. It's got a lot, it's cast iron typically, and it's got a lot of weight to it. And it looks like a, kind of like an ax with the, the head sideways on it, if that makes sense. And you grab the back of it and you just pull it and you scrape Mm -hmm. the extra glue off and it sets up fairly quickly it sets up really quickly and the the high glue that you scrape off actually stays on the surface and you can sand it off a little bit later but it forces the glue into the wood and into the fibers of the veneer and gives it a very strong bond you know it's it's a very common process for stuff done in in that era yeah, I'd, I'd give uh, Joey. I guess my recommendation is is I try the hammer veneering. Yeah, just because it it looks fairly straightforward. I haven't tried it yet, and I think it would be a lot of fun to try. Yeah. Sticky, but a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As as a good resource, um, there's uh, W. Patrick Edwards. The that's the guy that does the old brown glue. Yeah, I think yeah. he invented old brown glue. He has a he has a, a blog that he writes about a lot of the sort of antique refinishing and antique uh, processes and I think he writes quite a bit about hammer veneering. You might want to check him out. Yeah. It might be a good resource to learn how to how to do some hammer veneering. So. All right. All right. I think uh Hui, it's your question? Yes, yep. it's back to yes. me. All right. So this question is kind of a Funny question, but uh, but I think it'll like a funny weird or a funny ha ha, like a funny ha ha. This is from Pirate Woodworking. Uh, I always hear people talk about how you can't trust the square you just bought to be square. Well, if nothing I have is square, then how the hell do I know what is actually square? This question, <laughs> this question of what is really square and what is not, has been screwing with me for a couple of years now. Man, you need to get a new hobby, Pirate Woodworking. Um, so I just pass it over to you guys to get your perspective on this, uh, which, of course, makes it makes for its own set of headaches. OK, I mean, I, you got to check you got to check your tools. I mean, you get your you get your square. I don't I don't trust any square that I get is actually square. I just get a straight piece of uh, of wood that, you know, might have come off the joiner or whatnot. And I just take the square up to it if it's a combination square or whatever kind of square and then I scribe a line and then I flip it over and do the same thing and if it's square then it's square it's it's good enough it's good enough for me in that sense and you know I'm not going at it with with calipers or anything like that but can you explain that a little bit a little bit more to him as far as what you mean by you scribe a line and flip it over I place the square flat on the on piece of wood with the reference edge pushed up against the edge of the wood and then I scribe a line. Then I take it, the square, and I flip it 
180 degrees to the other side or not 180 degrees, but I flip it to the other side so that now the other reference edge of the square is on the same edge of the wood. And I bring it up to that line and I scribe the line. And if it, if those two lines meet and there's no deviation uh, at the far end of the line, then, you know, it's square enough for me. Did I explain that properly or was that bad? <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I know I know what you're talking about, so it's easy for me to envision what yeah. you're what you're saying. But I mean, I I think you've actually had a couple of squares, guy that that you actually bought from a reputable company, reputable company that actually weren't square when you got them, right? That's absolutely true. I every time I get a chair, I, I a chair. Every time <laughs> I get a chair, uh, every time I get a square, I I do check it for square. And actually, I have a. Uh, uh, an Incra seven inch square mm-hmm. that I know is deadly accurate. And that's typically what I use now to check my other squares. So I get a square, I just put it up to that, both the inside and the outside of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can tell right away whether or not it's square. Yeah, same here. I've got, I bought a a, a square and was given a um, Woodpecker 1281 or whatever. And they are both dead nuts square to one another. So I have two reference points that, if they're not square, then they're both off the same exact amount. So I'll just use those two as references for checking other things such as combination and double squares and right. and everything in my shop is square to those. So it's that's as close as I can get anyways. And I'm just going to, you know, use what I have because they're square to one another and to the the 1281 and the uh, Wood River or not Wood River, but um Wood Wood Graphics or Wood whatever I got off of Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's another brand that makes uh makes squares. They're all perfectly square to one another, so I just use those as references. How, how do you like that one? How does it compare to the twelve eighty one? The I think it, what is it? Wood graphics or something like that. It it's um it's pretty nice actually. It's um it's it was perfect out of the box. It came with a nice little pen or a pencil, mechanical pencil. Um, is a little bit cheaper. It's nowhere near as as beefy as the uh, woodpeckers, but it was square, uh, made out of aluminum, and I think it's even adjustable. Uh, if for some reason it hits, oh, yuck. It, yeah, if it come, becomes knocked out of square or something. Yeah, the nice thing about the woodpecker squares <clears throat> is that if you drop them, which <laughs> I've done a few times, if you drop them and you send you you send them back to woodpeckers, they'll square it back up for free. Nice. Yeah, I don't think I could send this one back to Amazon to square it for me. So that's one no, of the and that's that's advantage of the woodpecker. Yeah, yeah. you got to pay for shipping, but still, you know, you got a eighty, ninety dollars square. You know, ten dollars for UPS is nothing. That's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, if you don't drop them often, um, it's a, a it's you know it's a cheaper alternative. It's in my opinion, it's not quite as nice as the woodpecker, but it's square. So I, I think I think the bottom line is you know just check your squares, check your squares and find one. For me, I find one that's square. Yep, and then I use that as my reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just just easier. Yeah. All right, Sean, that was easy. So uh, we're 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 up to you now. Okay, this is from Scott. I was wondering your thoughts about putting a wax finish over Danish oil. I've heard that it's more upkeep and unnecessary. I finished a few small gift boxes made out of walnut with Danish oil, but I feel that I don't quite get the patina that I'm looking for. Do you have a favorite finish for small gift boxes? And that's from Scott. Uh, I can't comment on Danish oil. I've never used it. I just personally, I'm not researched it enough to understand why I'd want to use it over 
something else. But so I've never used a Danish oil, but I apply wax to the exterior of boxes because I like to use the wax to lubricate the steel wool. Mm. Is it required? No, it's not. Uh, I just apply it simply as a personal preference, like the, the way that it feels on the hand. I like the way that it smells because I got some really good smelling wax I like to use. What's it smell like? Uh, Is it beeswax? No, it's, I, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll put it in the show notes. I got it on. Is it like hemp wax? Does it smell like pot? Is that why you like the smell? <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope. I can't uh, remember the name of it, but I'll put it in the show notes if you guys are interested in checking it out. It smells really good. Um, mm. But my favorite finish for small box, small gift boxes, small boxes or whatever is going to be a simple shellac finish. Um, I'll just wipe a 1.5 pound cut. I'll wipe two or three light coats of 1.5 pound cut on the inside of the box and then probably up to five coats on the exterior of the box. Uh, and I'll sand after about the third coat with 400 grit. And after the finish cures a little bit, probably a few days, I'll hit it with some four zero steel wool mm. with wax, the good smelling wax, super simple finish. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's my go-to finish. Um, and as far as you don't quite get a patina that you're looking for with Danish oil, I, I can't help you. Can any of you guys help on that? I, I've never used the Danish oil. I just don't see the, the need to use it. I think Danish oil is kind of like um, a very general term. It's kind of like varnish. Mm-hmm. Everything is a varnish. So I think what Danish oil is, is my understanding of it is. It's like a polyurethane mixed with an oil. And, yep. And that's kind of like what I use. Right quite a bit, which is taking polyurethane, I mix it with boiled linseed oil, and then I mix some naphtha in there to help it dry quicker. Yeah. That, to me, is like Danish oil. I, I may be mistaken, but I think that's what it is. But you can buy, like, the the Watco's Danish oil, and it actually comes in, in mm-hmm. colors. You know, like they have walnut and cherry and stuff like that. So, yeah. But I've never used any of the Watco stuff. I've used quite a bit of my own mixture. I don't know if I'd put on a small box. I'd, I'm like Sean. I would use shellac. Yeah, for a small box, I would go shellac too. I mean, my furniture pieces, I have no problem putting the wiping varnish, wiping poly on, and then putting a little bit of wax just to kind of buff it and to just kind of give it a little bit of a, a shine, a little bit of a gloss. But for a box, I don't see what the benefit would be, especially know. the inside of the box. I couldn't imagine that was gonna, that would smell very, very good. No, you don't want to put that inside of a box because no. the smell will just always linger in there and as far as getting the patina that he's looking for with the danish oil are you primarily like if he's using watco danish oil just stuff that i've read is it's a real wipe on wipe off wipe on wipe off you're Mm -hmm. not going to get a super high sheen you're not going to get a semi-gloss or a gloss from what i've read i could be wrong again i've never used it and i've even seen some people say that you need a top coat over the danish oil um, for added protection. So again, I, need, I don't. Know. I need. A, I need a finish on my finish. Exactly, yeah. and then you're going to wax the finish on top of the finish. No, right. So it could just be that Danish oil is not what you're looking for. Uh, try a shellac, and I think that you'll get the the patina and the sheen. I'm guessing maybe you mean sheen when you say patina, or are you talking about chatoyance? I'm not sure, but give shellac a try. I think you'll like it. It's all those weird words that we use to describe the way wood looks. <laughs> yeah. Patina, really mean yeah. patina, yeah. sheen, chatoyance, chatoyance, yeah, warmth, yeah. I think we all agree. Yeah. A simple shellac finish. Have mm-hmm. any of you sprayed uh, lacquer on a box, like the little rattle can of yes. lacquer? Yes, quite a few times. 
Yeah, I I used it for the first time the other day. Uh, rattle can of lacquer on a Halloween bowl that I put uh, that I cut on the CNC machine. And wow, dude, I am a fan of that stuff. It's yeah, awesome. It's nice, stinky. Yeah, but, but it's nice. Yeah, yeah. I've used a, I used quite a bit of it, and uh, you just spray that stuff on, man, and it dries in like 10, 15 minutes, and you can knock it back and put a couple more coats on. You can build a build a finish pretty quick. Mm. Yeah, the reason I bring that up is like if you're making something like a valet box, that's not going to that's going to be open. I mean, a spray shellac like or spray lacquer like that is an alternative that you could use. Good point. Hope that helps, Scott. Uh, Guy, what do you have for us? I know. I got as always. I got to find the question. <laughs> okay, here it is. This is from Bart from Belgium. He's. Uh, we've answered a couple of his questions before, I believe. It's, he's, he's writing, I have an older coffee table. It's nicely made from oak, and it's finished in a dark brown stain and then covered in glossy varnish. He says, at least I think it's a stain-varnish combination. I like the coffee table, but the finish is not my style and prefer it to be matte and or lighter in color. I guess the easiest work is to just, to just get it matte by lightly sanding it and refinishing it with a matte varnish. Getting the color lighter will require more sanding and more work. That, that's a question. Mm-hmm. And what would your approach be? Any suggestion for stains, oils, or other finishes that look natural, lighter? Thank you, Bart from Belgium. So the, I'm going to tackle the first part of his question here. He's, he's saying that to get a mat would just be easy by lightly sanding it and refinishing it with matte varnish. Before you do that, you need to make sure that it's actually varnish on top of there, mm. unless you sand it back completely. But if it's if it's a varnish on top and you know it's varnish, I wouldn't even lightly sand it. I would just put the matte finish right over the top of it and be done with it. Because if it's glossy underneath and matte on top, it's still going to be matte. But I think he wants to lighten it up though, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I said that's the first part of the question. Mm-hmm. Is is how to get a, a a matte or a glossy varnish to a matte varnish. I would just put matte varnish right over the top of it. You don't even have to really sand anything because mm-hmm. it's varnish on varnish, and you're it's it's a it's a film finish anyways. So, what do you guys think of that? Would it be an issue uh, in terms of maybe doing a light sand to get a little bit of grip with the varnish, or is that not really a thing with it? Varnish will stick to varnish. Okay. If it's, if, but again, varnish is a very general term. And if everything right. is a varnish. Right. Lacquer is a varnish. Danish mm-hmm. oil is a varnish. Everything's a varnish. So, you know, I don't know what he's asking me when he says it's glossy varnish. Reading his, e- reading his question, it seems to me he knows what type of finish it is. And yeah. If he knows what, what finish is on it, I would just go with the same finish and just put matte right over the top of the gloss. Yeah. I would recommend, since this is an older coffee table, I would clean the entire surface before applying it because you don't know if there's any yeah. waxes or anything like that built up on it. Yeah. That could that's, be. that's a good point. That's yep. a good point. Yep. Yep. You're, always thinking, you're always thinking, Sean. I try. I try. If you wanted to lighten it up and, and actually change the color, because I've I've been wondering this too, and I don't know enough about this. It's like, does he have to sand beyond the stain? Depends. Okay. So you're saying, you know, it's like saying varnish. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
what type of varnish? So you're saying stain. Okay. What type of stain? Mm -hmm. Is it a, is it a penetrating stain or is it like, you know, some type of, some type of stain that sits on top of the wood, like a gel stain? Mm. You don't know. Yeah. So if you want, if you want to get back to the lighter color, you're going to have to, you know, sand all the finish off and start sanding down to bare wood. Yeah. And how far you have to go past the, the finish to get the color you want, you know, that's dependent. Would there be an instance, like you were mentioning, penetrating stain, where you really can't go far enough? You couldn't sand far enough? You just Some of, some of, that, some of that stuff goes in, you know, a sixteenth of an inch. Oh, geez. In the top wood, especially oak. Yeah, which is a, a, a an open grain wood. Open it's grain really going to get yeah. It's really going to get in there. Yeah. So I don't know if you could sand it. This is true. Yep. He says it's made from oak. Yeah. Yeah. So you're gonna have to experiment on a on a on a portion where you're not going to see very much because man, if you, gosh, if 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 you've got one of those stains that goes really deep and you want to lighten it up, you might be there forever. But it, it depends what? if it if it if it was a if it was a a gel type stain. Mm. That stuff just sits on the surface. Right. It doesn't penetrate. So who knows? Who knows? Yeah. And maybe what he's wanting is just a lighter, lighter version of the dark brown, of the brown. So he may, mm -hmm. he may get lucky and just, you know, sand it with, you know, 120 or something and then 180 and 220 or whatever. And, and that may be enough to lighten it up for, for uh, his taste. He may not want yeah. to strip it all the way back. If he just wants to lighten the coat a little bit, mm -hmm. he may get lucky and sand it with 120 and it'll lighten it up enough. And then as he continues to work through the grits, you know, it'll, it'll lighten it a little bit more, but it'll also polish the surface to apply it, get ready for the finish and maybe he'll get lucky. But if he wants yeah. to go with a completely different color, yeah, he's going to have a lot of sanding ahead of him. And on the legs and all that stuff, that's going to be a lot of sanding. Yeah. 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 I say just paint it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> General finishes kidding. milk paint. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, but that is a good question, and that's something you hear a lot. You know, I've got this; it looks like this. I want to change the color on it, and it's tough going from a. It's it's easy to go from a light to a dark, right? But going from a dark to a light mm -hmm. is going to require a lot more work. You got to remove instead of add. Yeah, getting it from a, a gloss to a matte finish is easy, mm -hmm. but you know, getting something lighter, man, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to knock the, all the, the the top coat off of it, and then start going through a sanding schedule and trying to get it to the color you want. Yeah, and the glossy varnish, if if he's meaning polyurethane, like I was saying, apply a matte polyurethane. If it's a lacquer, apply a matte lacquer. Right. Stick to the same kind. Yes. Yes. Cool. That was a good one. Mm -hmm. All right. Is that it? Yep. That's it. Wow. That was that was a quick show, guys. Should we like fill up an extra fifteen minutes? Hui, can you do a uh, a song for us? <laughs> Dude, we always go this long. We always go forty five yeah. minutes at this point, do we? and then yeah. Okay. It's it just it just seems short because I'm you know Tell I'm having such a good time. I'm having such a good time. It's just flying by. Maybe you could, what was the last uh, story you read? Uh, the little one there, we, uh, we are doing a hundred words right now. A hundred words. Yeah. First hundred words, first hundred words, like, you know, yellow or red and apple and orange. How about you know? mama and papa? 
Are Mama those in there? Papa. Yeah. Are those in the first hundred words? I can't remember. There are a lot of words. <laughs> There's a hundred yeah. of them. There's a hundred of them to remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have? Do you have the book handy? Can you check? No, it's in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wait. Go ahead. It's in the nursery. No, <laughs> we got. We got. We got all the time in the world, man. Oh my! The power goodness. of all editing. Right, all right. All right. All right. I'm gonna <laughs> no leave that in, man. That's 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 good podcast, right? That's good woodworking podcast, right there. Uh. So, um, what about recommendations? Hui, uh, who do you have for recommendation? So I'm choosing Fernway Woodworking. His name is Justin Nelson, and he advertises himself as a small batch furniture design studio. And uh, he's come up with his own line of furniture that he's been pushing to interior designers and other designers and craftspeople. And uh, three pieces that I particularly like are his uh, sling chair, his tripod pedestal table, and his coffee table. Very interesting designs coming up with his own furniture line. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's he's doing it himself. So it's it's pretty cool to see him evolve and to start actually uh, pushing some of his own furniture out there and getting him getting his name out there. So, uh, Sean, how about you? Who, who do you have for your feature this week? I have Chris Haley from Studio CSH. He is at Studio CSH on Instagram. Uh, Chris is a very talented wood turner out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, he's also an instructor at several organizations all over the country, and Chris has been turning bowls recently, and they are absolutely stunning. He uses a lot of figured woods, and he dyes the rim uh, in the different colors to make the bowl just pop. And I actually purchased one from Chris, and he shipped it the other day, and I can't wait to get it in. It's awesome looking. It's a curly maple, I believe. But anyways, Chris turns more than just bowls, and in fact... We recently collaborated on my Babinga cabinet. He turned the feet and they are perfect. Give Chris a follow not only on Instagram, but over on his YouTube channel as well, at Studio CSH. Guy? Uh, my pick this week is my buddy Tim Fuller, and his uh, Instagram is Retired with Wood. I've known Tim for a long time. He's, a, he's an excellent craftsman. Recently, in the last couple of years, he started to do a lot of lumber milling and he bought a, his family has, has owned a, a sawmill for a long time, but he bought a used uh, wood miser, I think probably around four years ago, maybe, mm-hmm. but he just bought another one and he actually just built a whole new building for his new <laughs> saw miser. And uh, I think he's got a, a kiln in there now, too, from Woodmiser. Yep. So his Instagram, he's been doing posting a lot on Instagram. Uh, it's very cool stuff. It, he went from basically from flat land to a building with a, with a sawmilling operation and kiln drying in there. It's pretty cool, and you should really check it out. Uh, retired with Wood. So I think that's going to do it for the show. I'd like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And, of course, we truly appreciate support and feedback. Uh, please remember that this podcast is here to answer questions from you, the woodworking community. So if you do have questions and you want them answered, you can send them to the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at the Woodshop Life. And you can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. And uh, where can you be found, we? AlabamaWoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are there. Sean, how about you? 
simplecove.com at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. All righty then. Hey, we'll talk to you guys later. See you in a couple. Bye. Bye.